Psalm 32, a well-known psalm in relation to forgiveness, a psalm of David. Let's read some of the psalm. It's commencing at verse number one. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old, through my roaring all the day long, for day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time, in a time excuse me, when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Let's turn over to the New Testament, to the book of Colossians, please, in chapter 1. Verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now our last reading is in 1 John chapter 1. First John chapter 1, please, and we'll read from verse 5. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now they are scattered readings, but we trust God will bless them to us and our consideration of this subject this evening. I'll start with a quote, and this may resonate with you. Forgiveness is very hard, mainly because we assume that forgiveness allows an injustice to stand. Now, we need to test that assumption from Scripture. Actually, when we come to the whole subject of forgiveness, uh, many of the, the, the conflicts and problems and issues surrounding forgiveness actually are very small. Some writers put it, one writer put it this way, many of our conflicts are like two ants arguing about which is taller while standing in front of, in front of Mount Everest, quibbling over some tiny difference, for the vastness of Almighty God soars above them with all the wrong perspective. 
So often as we come to this subject, often the issue that concerns us is not really an issue of justice and it's not really an issue of forgiveness. Often it's just an issue of maturity or immaturity. But having said that, the Bible does speak a lot about forgiveness. In fact, throughout Scripture, our God is praised and spoken of as the God of forgiveness. Let me just take you through some of the scriptures that teaches that. Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, when God reveals himself to Moses and he speaks of who he is and what he is, and it says that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, and here it is, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So God says that about himself. He says that he is a God who is characterized by the forgiveness of sin, iniquity and transgression. When you come to the New Testament, you find that again, when God is spoken of, he's spoken of in those terms. Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 13. And Paul says this, that you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now when you read about the gospel, which was preached by the apostles, you find this, that the gospel consistently stressed the forgiveness of sins as being one of the chief blessings and benefits of the message that was being preached. So you can take yourself through the book of Acts. For example, Acts chapter 5, verse number 31. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a saviour for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 13 verse 38, be it known unto you therefore men and brethren that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Now when you come into the epistles you find this, that in the exposition and explanation of the gospel that was preached in the book of the Acts, then as part of that exposition the forgiveness of sins is also mentioned. For example, we've read of it in Colossians, but also in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In fact, again, it's interesting that when you think about something that's so precious to us as Christians, the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, forgiveness is part and parcel of that. Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. When this was being instituted, the Lord Jesus said this, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission, for the forgiveness of sins. Now, as Christians, we're very glad that God forgives Because the psalmist expressed that in Psalm 130, verse number 3, when the psalmist said this, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, who can stand? Who can stand? And so the fact that God forgives is one of the basic reasons why we are able to have a relationship with him and have had the blessing of salvation and have our eternal future stretching out before us as it is. If God was not a God of forgiveness, none of us could stand before him. We would all be subject to his judgment and condemnation. 
So we're glad that God is a God of forgiveness. Now then, when we speak about forgiveness, what are we talking about? Let's define our terms. One of the most uh, well-known amongst those who write about this, the worst well-known definition of forgiveness was given by one of the Puritans called Thomas Watson, who's probably the most quoted Puritan. And I don't know if you read his stuff. I tend to read his quotes more than his stuff. But one of his quotes is this, when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them. We grieve at their calamities. We pray for them. We seek reconciliation with them. We show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. And Thomas Watson gives that kind of definition to forgiveness. But let's go into Scripture and see what the Bible says. Does that match up to actually what is taught in Scripture about forgiveness? So we need to find out what some of the words mean. There are two main words in the Greek New Testament that are rendered in our English versions as forgive. And there are two different concepts. I'm not going to try and uh, quote the Greek words to you because I'll never get, I can hardly get quotation of some English words right, never mind Greek. But one of the words means literally to send away. So as you think about forgiveness, note this. That forgiveness, even in the definition of some of these words, is very different to how it is commonly used. I'm going to suggest to you that the common use of forgiveness has to do with emotion as opposed to relationship. It has to do with how you feel and sorting out how you feel about the situation. It's all to do with one person, not two. And forgiveness is given by one person to satisfy essentially one person. And one person in the common use of the word is really all that's involved in forgiveness. But when you come to the Bible, forgiveness always involves two people. Always two. And this word forgiveness means literally to send away and appears 36 times in the New Testament, always associated with the pardon of sins. To send away. The other word means to bestow a favor or to show a kindness. For example, it's used in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up from us all, for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The word is used in there, freely give. And that's the concept. It's used in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7 in relation to the forgiveness of a repentant brother in a local assembly to bestow a kindness upon that brother. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13, Paul twice uses the term, once for the forgiveness we ought to extend to one another, and then to that which we received from Christ. We received a kindness bestowed from Christ, so we therefore ought to bestow kindness on others. That's the use of the word in that context. Forbearing one another, forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ also forgave you. But there are also, there are also figurative expressions which are used in the context of forgiveness. 
For example, in the Old Testament, Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. That's the idea. To remove your transgressions from you is the concept of forgiveness. Hezekiah in Isaiah 38 and verse 17 thanked the Lord for his redemption, proclaiming this, that he had thrown all his sins behind his back. So you've got these pictures of forgiveness as far as the east is from the west, the removal of transgressions, the taking of transgressions and the putting them behind the Lord's back. (coughs) Again, Micah When he speaks about this, he describes Jehovah as treading our iniquities under his feet and then casting the residue to the bottom of the sea. Very graphic language. When you come to the New Testament, when someone turns to God in obedience, his sins are blotted out. Again, that is speaking about forgiveness. The removal, the complete removal of them, and it comes from the idea of ink being washed out of papyrus as it was there so that the sins are blotted out that's where you get that idea from and they are completely removed so that the sheet could be used again it was returned to its original color so you've got these pictures of forgiveness and these two basic words a word that speaks about removal we're going to see that it used to be or it was used particularly in the removal of a debt And we've got this idea of the bestowal of kindness. And we have it pictured in those most graphic examples that I've given you already. So what is it? What is it? Well, we're going to see this. That forgiveness, especially when we think about God's forgiveness, is a promise from God. That our sin will never be remembered by him again. That it will be buried to the depths of the deepest sea. It will be removed as far as the east is from the the, the west. That no charge will ever come up against me in terms of my sin. It will never be an issue again before God. It will be gone once and for all and the debt will be removed. Now when someone comes and asks us for forgiveness. Then again the issue is are we willing to make such a promise? Are we willing to do what God has done? Will we never remember that sin again? Will we remove that sin and bestow kindness upon an individual? Will we never re-establish the sin, re-identify it and use it in order to condemn an individual? That's the challenge. Someone wrote this, forgiveness is to cover his sin permanently, never to remember it, never to bring it up within your own mind. Never to bring it up to the sinner. Never to bring it up to anyone else. It's a promise to forget. It's a promise to bury. It's a promise to remove from your thought life, insofar as you can, the issue that has been between you and this other individual. And it's all in the context of the reconciliation of relationship. We also discover this, it's not only a promise, it is also something that comes from the heart. It's an attitude that holds no pride, no self-pity, no wounded ego, no thoughts for vengeance or bitterness. It's a heart of attitude of love that wants the restoration of relationship. 
It starts in the heart, but mark this, and I'll develop this tomorrow. Mark this. It starts in the heart, and it remains in the heart. And the willingness to give it is there, and the willingness to share it is there. But unless the other person is willing to engage, there can be no true forgiveness. I'm going to expand that in some detail tomorrow. Unless a sin is confessed, unless a sin is repented of, the fullness of forgiven can never be experienced and true reconciliation and true restoration will not take place. Will not take place. We're going to see, for example, the Lord himself now, someone say, well, that's not how the Lord forgave, for the Lord forgave differently on the cross. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. On the cross, the Lord Jesus did not forgive anyone. The Lord Jesus prayed to his Father and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, what did he do by praying that? He affirmed, first of all, that God is a God of forgiveness. That was the first thing. Secondly, he affirmed that people had done things without understanding the full consequences of their actions. And he understood that and he accepted that. And then thirdly, his desire was that his father would treat those sinners who were doing such unspeakable things to the son of his love, the one who was most precious to the father, and he wanted them treated like any other sinner. Any other sinner. He wanted God's heart of forgiveness to be toward them as it was toward any. He wanted forgiveness available to them, the same forgiveness that was available to any sinner who committed any sin. He did not want that particular crime, that particular sin, that particular wickedness to be different from any other that had been committed. Therefore, he prayed, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. He was not granting absolution to those people standing around the cross. If they were going to receive forgiveness from the Father, which was to be made available to them, they would have to come in the same way as any, in repentance and faith, accepting God's grace and the forgiveness that was proffered and paid for by the blood of Christ. It was not open absolution. It never is in the context of forgiveness. You see, God holds forgiveness and love in his heart. It's been bought by the precious blood of Christ and is freely available, but it must be received in order to be effective. And the reception of forgiveness by any from the hand of God is by repentance and faith. No repentance, no forgiveness. No re-establishment of that relationship broken by sin unless there is repentance on the part of the sinner. We know that to be true in the gospel. That is the way that God forgives. And it's the only way that God forgives. Otherwise, then, you have universalism. You have open forgiveness for everyone. And we know the Bible doesn't teach that. Far from it. 
Listen, in our heart, there ought to be love and humility and an openness and a willingness for forgiveness. We ought not to reserve bitterness within our heart. We ought to, 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 do, to get rid of that bitterness, no matter what, that which will eat away at us. We ought to have within our heart a loving, anxious longing for forgiveness to take place when that other individual will come to us in repentance or when we will go to another individual seeking forgiveness on a proper basis. So there's a difference between getting rid of bitterness and all of that kind of harmful stuff that's within you about something and actually experiencing true forgiveness. One is to do with emotion and the other is to do with relationship restored. Now I'm going to develop that in some detail tomorrow and to speak about the difference between conditional and unconditional forgiveness because it is an often misunderstood concept in terms of biblical teaching. There is so much... um, statements uh, and poetry uh, and, and very kind of superficial things said about forgiveness that actually don't bear up the reality of our lives because it's not biblical. And we're going to see some of that tomorrow. But let's come to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14. I want to think with you now about forgiveness in the sphere of salvation. Colossians 1 verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now let us think then about the forgiveness that God grants to the repentant sinner. It is linked with redemption and it cannot be separated. Now we would understand this, that redemption is a very important biblical word. It means to to let go or to free someone uh, upon the payment of a ransom. It's usually in the context of slavery. It was used in secular Greek as a kind of technical term for the sum of money that was paid to buy back and set free prisoners, usually prisoners of war actually, or to emancipate slaves. So you've got the idea of releasing, of setting free, of removing. And redemption is the purchase price in order for that to take place. For example, in Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 49, it speaks about the redemption of a bond servant by a kinsman redeemer. And if you want to look at redemption, you can find some help in that illustration. Now, redemption is the price that is required for forgiveness. The price that's demanded for forgiveness. For without the redemption price being paid, then no forgiveness can be offered. Now we understand that. That's one of the great tenets of the gospel. That's one of the reasons why the Lord Jesus had to go to the cross and shed his precious blood because God could not forgive the guilty without the guilt being dealt with. And so the death of Christ, the redemption that Christ's death provides enables forgiveness to be offered and for us to receive it and thus you cannot separate the two. So the Lord Jesus has not only redeemed us as believer, setting us free, he's translated us into a new sphere, under a new sphere of authority. He has also cancelled every debt that we owed. 
We cannot be enslaved again. All our debt is gone. Every sin that incurred debt in our relationship to God has been removed from us. The account is clear. We have been forgiven. We've been forgiven. This word forgiveness that I've mentioned, the first Greek word that I mentioned, the removal is, as I said, often associated with the removal of debt, the remission, the pardon, the cancellation of debt. And so you've got the act of releasing someone from a debt, from an obligation, and usually an obligation they couldn't pay, therefore were enslaved as a result, because much of the slavery of the Roman Empire was associated with debt. And if people can pay their debts, then they would go into slavery for a certain period of time in order to pay it off. So remission, so forgiveness means once and for all the removal of debt, of guilt, of punishment, of power to be freed from sin. Woost actually translates this, Kenneth Woost, in his helpful expanded translation. He says, not so much the forgiveness, he says the putting away of our sins. The putting away of our sins. Now again, if you want a very good Old Testament picture, then you go to Leviticus chapter 25 and what it says there about Jubilee. Now, we've all heard about the Queen's Jubilee and all this kind of thing. And when you go to Leviticus chapter 25, there are 11 uses in the Greek version of the Old Testament of this particular word. To put away, to remove. And it is used frequently... In the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint version, where in the Hebrew Old Testament the word jubilee is used. And instead of the phrase the year of jubilee, you've got the year of release. Because essentially that was what was taking place in the year of jubilee. In this year of jubilee that came round, this 50th uh, year that came round, the, the one aspect of that year was that the indebted slaves were released in the year of Jubilee. So you get this concept of release associated with Jubilee and you can see that that is the idea of forgiveness. There's a slave, he's indebted, it comes up to the year of release, of forgiveness, of Jubilee, and he's set free. He's forgiven. Now he must actually receive that forgiveness in order for it to be effective. It's not unilateral. Bilateral. Now, in the New Testament, sin is depicted as the master to whom we are enslaved. That is bound us and all mankind, actually. And so Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 that thanks be to God that though we were slaves of sin, we became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which we were committed and having been what? There's the word. Freed. Forgiven, freed from sin, we became slaves of righteousness. So the concept of Leviticus 25 in the year of Jubilee is actually taken up in the New Testament to speak about our forgiveness. So our forgiveness is not just an accounting. It's not that God just does his sums and says, well, there's nothing more to be paid. So we're forgiven. It's No, it's that there's been a new relationship established. 
Forgiveness has to do with relationship. And that old relationship of sin and the domination under the mastery of sin has been broken. And redemption has paid the price for our being setting free. But we were set free into another relationship. And that's the relationship with Christ. And we are now in relationship with him because we have been forgiven. You cannot, you should not separate forgiveness from relationship. It's so important when we think about what the Bible says in relation to this subject. Wesley in his hymn puts it very succinctly and very well. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. It's not just the sin being cancelled. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. You know, the gospel message is not that God forgives. That's an insufficient message. The gospel message is not even that God forgives at the price of his son. That's an insufficient message. The gospel is that God forgives at the price of his son in response to repentance. And without one aspect of that, it falls and is unbiblical. So as we think about forgiveness that God grants, let us understand that, that the forgiveness of God is on the price of redemption and is received in repentance. I'm going to give you a quote just before I move on to 1 John 1. What does divine forgiveness mean? Well, it is a part or consequence of justification, that judicial act or declaration of God, where he pronounces us not guilty of our sin. It means that God pardons or remits sin. He absolves the repentant sinner from the condemnation of the law. He deals graciously with us, bestows kindness upon us, and not as our sins deserve, as we trust and rest in him for salvation. The Bible does not teach universalism. And to teach that God forgives unconditionally is universalism. Because then he will forgive everyone, no matter what. And he doesn't. Well, if that is the salvation that we've come into through repentance and faith, and praise God that it is, a forgiveness that, that covers it all, that establishes a relationship with God, a forgiveness that takes the dead away and bestows kindness upon us because of Christ. Let's now speak about ongoing forgiveness. Ongoing forgiveness. Now let's go to 1 John chapter 1, for that's our text to speak of ongoing forgiveness. Now we're speaking about Christians. Now we're speaking about those, I trust all in the room, who have come through repentance and faith into relationship with God, who have been forgiven. Relationship has been established, but has to be maintained. The question is just this, if we are to have fellowship, communion with God, we need to remember the character of God. And John reminds us of this in this opening chapter. It says in verse number five, this is the message which we've heard of him and declare unto you that what? God is light. He is the character of God. 
and in him is no darkness at all. So there is God. God is light and there's no darkness in him. Now we want to walk with God. We want to be in relationship with God practically. We want to have communion and fellowship with a God in whom is no darkness. How can two walk together except they be agreed? How can we possible have intimacy in our relationship with him if our life is not consistent with his character? That's the question that John is going to deal with here in chapter 1. How can we as sinners, yes we've been forgiven, but we still commit sin, possibly have fellowship that's meaningful with a God who is light, a God who is holy, and a God who is true? Well, the first thing that John will actually establish is just this. In order to enjoy such a relationship, there needs to be a frank recognition of exactly what we are and what we do. And so there are these questions, if we say, if we say, if we say. And in these verses, there is a false claim being made by some that John identifies that they are completely free from sin. Sin's not an issue with them. Now, John is teaching us that that is not so. How are we to deal with sin as Christians going forward in our relationship with God? Well, the first thing that we could say is just say this. We don't have any sin. It's a non-issue. I don't think any of us in this room would, would be so bold as to make that statement. I mean, it's a, it's a statement that is so ridiculous when we're in each other's company for 10 minutes or maybe five minutes even, or maybe even not as much as that. But it's so obvious that all of us have problems with sin. Every one of us. So claiming to be without sin is a definite evidence of self-delusion. And more than that, it's probably an evidence of no reality of salvation. But how do we respond? How should I think about sin? How should I think about myself? What's my response to sin as a Christian? Well, John's going to teach us this. That the proper Christian response to sin is confession. And confession as the expression of ongoing repentance. Repentance and the confession of sin are spoken of by John and other writers as part of a normal, ongoing aspect of Christian life. Not unusual, not abnormal, but normal. It is the rhythms of Christian living. It's the kind of heartbeat of spiritual life. The need to repent and the expression of that repentance before God. That through which we came, if you like, to God should characterise us as an ongoing, in our ongoing life. Faith and, faith and repentance. We came to Christ in faith, but we must live by faith. We came to Christ in repentance, but we must live repentantly. You cannot just stop that at the point of conversion. And the good news is just that, is this, that John says, if we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Now, John couldn't have given us any better news than that in relation to Christian life. Otherwise, you know, if John didn't have that to tell us, we would be destroyed. We would be depressed and desolate. We would be hopeless and we would be doubting our salvation all the time. Listen, 
The reality is that sin's an issue for all of us. But the good news that John has to bring to us in terms of our Christian life is this, that God is faithful and God is righteous to forgive. Now, you might say, well, that's strange expressions for him to use, and it may seem strange expressions. Perhaps you might have anticipated he's gracious and merciful, or he's compassionate. None of these words are used. I much prefer, and I'm so glad to hear words like righteous and faithful in relation to the forgiveness of sins. You see, the forgiveness on an ongoing basis of my sin, and I'm going to explain just in a second what I mean by that, depends upon God's own veracity. His integrity is at stake. He's faithful. He is faithful to forgive those because of Christ and what Christ has accomplished on the cross. But he's also righteous to forgive. Now you might think, well that's another strange expression, you might think it should say he's righteous to judge. It says he's righteous to forgive. Because the fact that God has forgiven our sins by visiting the penalty of them on the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a case of double jeopardy, it would be wrong, unrighteous for him then to seek payment and penalty of our sins again. You see, he's righteous. He won't do such a thing. There's no unrighteousness with God. He hasn't swept the sins under the carpet. He hasn't just cancelled our debt. He has liquidated our debt in Christ. And so we go to him with our sin. And we ask him to be faithful and righteous. And forgive our sin. You seem a bit confused. I thought you said I was forgiven. And now you're saying I've got to keep on going back and ask for forgiveness. What does this mean? Let me be absolutely clear. When you trust the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and you come repentantly to him to receive his forgiveness, all the penal consequence of your sin is gone. All the debt is paid. There is nothing in terms of divine judgment and justice that you and I have to face. It's gone once and for all. But we have the ongoing impact of our sin upon our communion and relationship with God. And that impact is not good. We're not speaking about the penal consequences of it. We're not speaking about eternal judgment. We're not speaking about penal judgment at all. What we are speaking about is not so much a judge looking at a criminal, but a father looking at a child. It is parental rather than penal. Now, there is a difference between the two. And so, God's actions toward us in terms of our ongoing sin is usually phrased in terms like that of a father with a child exercising discipline to shape and to, to mould the character of that child. The chastening of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord. It's a far different picture than the judge sitting with a criminal in front who's guilty or not guilty. 
And that's the context in which the Bible speaks about our ongoing sin. Listen, without the confession of our ongoing sins to God, we will never attain a divine sense of God's forgiveness, an enjoyment of that forgiveness. It will be marred and stained by the defilement of our sin. If you like, the chain will not be broken, but it will be muddied. And the absolute cast iron link between God and me is unbreakable. But it can be tarnished. And my defiling sin can distance myself from God in terms of intimacy and fellowship and enjoyment and relationship. I won't break it. You know, I read in Psalm 32 because David experienced that. It says this, When I was silent, my bones waxed old. He felt the displeasure of God like a displeased parent looking at a child that had gone way off the rails, walking not in the way of truth and not confessing it, bottling up and refusing to open up about it. God knew all about it, but, but David wouldn't open up. And then he tells us in Psalm 32, when he confessed his sin, he knew restoration. You know, when we refuse to deal with our sins on an ongoing basis, again, just by opening up, confessing them, we find this, we get burdened and dogged by guilt and all these sorts of things. But when we confess, it's like the healing of bones. It's like a fracture being set and healed, according to David. It's the thing that just goes right back into place the way it should be and can function as it was designed to function. Secondly, if we do not confess our sins, we are denying the truth of what John says and we are not accepting the reality that we are, although united to Christ, still sinning. Now, Paul, he, he teaches about this in Romans chapter 6. He says, listen, don't let that sin that's in your life become a master over you. It's present. It's there. It's residing in your flesh, but it ought not to reign. Resident, but not reigning. And the Bible does recognise that though we have been forgiven by his mercy, we still struggle with sin. And if we don't confess it, we're refusing to acknowledge that truth. Thirdly, we are also refusing to acknowledge that we have an ongoing responsibility to God to confess because he has instructed us to do so. You know, when you come to 1 John 1, 9, John is talking to believers. He's not talking to unbelievers. And he's not saying to unbelievers, confess your sins for the first time and you'll be forgiven. That's not the context of the passage. He's speaking to people that he'll describe as children, little children, brothers and sisters in Christ. He's saying to them, you need to confess your sins. But chiefly, we need to confess our sins because sin is displeasing to God. I mean, it's all said and done. That's why we need to confess our sin. You think of a child 
and how dysfunctional the relationship is when the child has done something and won't own up. It's like a big cloud hanging over the relationship in the house. And the child knows they've done it and the parent knows they've done it, but it's like this big thing. It just gets worse and worse and worse. Distance gets greater. Other issues arise. But you think about the joy and you think about how much of a relief and you think about how good it is when there is a confession and the thing is just opened up and it's talked about. And what everyone knew about is spoken about. And the air gets cleared and the relationship gets restored. You don't cease to become part of the family in that circumstance, but you, you, you cease to enjoy what you ought to be enjoying as part of the family. But what, what a good thing it is when there's a restoration of that and all that the family is can be enjoyed because that has been confessed. So confession is essential because sin is displeasing to God. Now he disciplines us as his children but he never does so to satisfy his justice in relation to sin because that's been satisfied once and for all. But in order to remove his displeasure and the consequence of that displeasure upon our sin. Which brings me to Psalm 32 very quickly as I finish up. I want to finish on a more positive note because, you know, that's been a wee bit heavy, I think, I suppose, but it's been important to get that kind of foundation laid before we go into tomorrow's session. I want to speak to you about the blessedness of forgiveness. (coughs) Forgiveness is a very blessed thing. And whether it's forgiveness in personal relationships that is offered and received, And the relationship is restored. That's a blessed thing. But how much more in relation to God? The blessedness of his forgiveness. Well, that's what David's speaking about. And do you know, I think that perhaps most of the reason for dysfunctional relationships between us is a dysfunctional relationship with God. And if we knew more of the blessedness of his forgiveness, we might need to know less of forgiveness within our relationships. David writes about the blessedness of it and he knew how it felt to have God displeased with him. He really made a mess of things. And he's writing because he knew the displeasure of God but he also knew the joy and the relief of God's forgiveness when he experienced it. He says, blessed is the man. And if you've heard ministry in this psalm as I've heard, then you'll know this as well as psalm number one, that that blessed is a plural word. And the idea is that there are many blessings there, if you will use the word happy, oh, the happiness, happinesses, and you have to put the yes on because it's plural, whether it's blessed or happy, you know, it's not a singular thing. There are many blessings. There is so much happiness for the person who experiences God's forgiveness. 
And I'm going to suggest to you in verse 1 to 2, he is focusing on this, the blessedness of a clear conscience before God. Let me ask you a question. How is your conscience before God? It's a very, very uncomfortable question, isn't it, really? Can I suggest to you, if you're like me, and you probably are, it's not clear. At the best of times, it's not dark, but you would hardly say it's clear. Absolutely transparent. I think David got to the point here where he had experienced a clear conscience for the first time in a year. And he's fit to burst. He's so delighted. It's such a relief. He actually is quite expansive in his language. If you look at it, you'll see that he uses four Hebrew words to describe his sin. Not just one. He actually describes it in terms of four words. He's not hiding from it. He's completely open about it. And he is quite descriptive in terms of the language he uses. He speaks about transgression, which means rebellion and a refusal to submit to authority. And he had been a transgressor for a year. And he had overstepped the bounds that God had established in relation to Uriah, in relation to Bathsheba, which he's probably writing about. He had overstepped divine boundaries. And he had transgressed. And he had rebelled against the authority that established these boundaries in his life. But he uses the word sin because he'd also missed the mark. And while transgression looks at the violation of a law that you usually know, sin looks at falling short of that standard that God expects of us. He'd fallen well short of the standard. As a king and as a man and as a husband and as a friend, he had absolutely missed the mark. So he says, I've sinned, I've transgressed, and then he uses the word iniquity. And that comes from a word that speaks about being twisted. It has a nuance of perverting something that is straight, that is right. And that's exactly what he had done. He had perverted something that was straight and good. He twisted it. And then he uses the word deceit. Because there had been deceit. There was a deliberate cover-up. Falsehood and hypocrisy. And the sad story of David and Bathsheba is that. It's a sad, sad story. But you know, these words that are used, these Hebrew words that are used by David remind us of the extent of the debt that he had incurred and the offence he had given to God. You know, when you think about God's forgiveness on an ongoing basis, let's be frank about this. We need to get into the presence of God and name and shame ourselves we need to use the words we need to say the words there's no point just using one word when four are required David uses the four and he also 
is so appreciative of God's forgiveness, he uses three words for it. So you've got four about his sin, you've got three about forgiveness. Because he appreciates the fact that, number one, he uses the word forgiven, that idea of bearing or carrying away the burden. And sin was a burden to him. And you can look again, well, you can look at Leviticus 16 this time, Rallon chapter 25, and you'll see another illustration of the thing being carried away with the scapegoat in the Day of Atonement. And you have the scapegoat that symbolically carried the burden of the nation's sin away from them. You remember one goat was slain and the other goat was not. The other goat was left alive. But symbolically, the high priest lays hands on its head, confessed the sins of the people, and in ceremonial ceremonial fashion, he laid the burden of those sins on that goat. And the goat was taken out by the hand of a fit man and abandoned. It was removed. It was a picture of the removal of the burden of sin. Lord Jesus Christ is, of course, the perfect and final scapegoat for our sins. He bore, here's the word, he bore our sins on his own body on the tree. So they're gone. David says, I've been forgiven. David says, my sins have been covered, which means they no longer are visible. So you've got the removal, and then you've got the fact that they're no longer visible. And then he says they're not imputed, which means that in God's accounting and consideration and valuation of David, these sins didn't feature anymore. They weren't there. They had gone. They were not imputed. They were not counted. They were not in the equation anymore. In relation to God and him, they had been covered, forgiven, not imputed. And of course, that's taken up in the New Testament, in particularly the book of Romans in relation to our sin and also in relation to Abraham, who believed in the Lord and that was credited, reckoned the same word to him as righteousness. But you know... I suggest that you read this psalm in your own time because the turning point in the psalm for all of this is in verse 5 when David does what? When David confesses his sin. David says that was the turning point. And so David exhorts his readers in verse 6 to do the same thing while they have opportunity. He's implying a window of opportunity for repentance. And the fact is, Proverbs 29 verse 1 says this, He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed. And that without remedy. David says, take the opportunity, lest it pass. We do have opportunity, don't we? But it's not constant. Not in my experience anyway. I'm not inclined to confess my sins all the time. And I'm pretty sure you're not either. You see, it comes upon you from time to time. And you are convicted. And your conscience is pricked. But you can harden your neck. And if you harden your neck, it may well be the opportunity passes. The inclination goes. 
Life goes on. So David says, take the opportunity in verse 6 and confess your sin. I like the word he uses for confess, and with this I will finish. You know, the Hebrew and the Septuagint words used both of the idea of openly acknowledging. That's the concept. It is to tell forth, to speak out, to confess. And when you look at that, from verse 7, 8, 10, 11 particularly, you discover three things, and I'll leave this with you. Here's the blessedness of it. It wasn't just about how David felt. It was actually what God then became to him that for a year he hadn't been. Number one, God became his refuge, verse 7. Now, God wasn't his refuge when he had a hard neck in relation to his sin. David wasn't talking to God. He wasn't going to God. He wasn't, he was staying away. God wasn't his refuge. Secondly, God was his guide, verse 8. Now, God certainly wasn't his guide in that year. And thirdly, verse 10 and 11, God was his joy. God was his joy. Listen, if God is not your refuge, nor your guide, nor your joy, it's probably because, like me, from time to time, we are not confessing our sin. And if we harden our neck, the opportunity can go. But listen, forgiveness, forgiveness. I hope we've learned tonight that there's more to it than how I feel. And feeling better about a situation. Being more comfortable with a situation. Now there is aspects to Christian living where that is important. And the Bible speaks about these sorts of things on occasion. But not here. A heart of love, yes. A heart of bitterness, no. A heart willing to forgive, yes. But if that forgiveness is going to establish and build and do what it ought to do in the restoration of relationship, it must be forgiveness received. It must be. People speak about forgiveness, those who write about it anyway, and they speak about it as a spiritual handshake offered. Sometimes when you offer your hand, you're left with your hand outstretched. And it's not taken. And if it's not taken, there is no forgiveness. There can be a heart of love. There can be a lack of bitterness. But we're going to see there's an issue still remaining. And there's a brokenness still there. And there's still forgiveness that could be required. We'll look at that tomorrow in more detail. Let's just pray and give God thanks for our study this evening.